Welcome everyone to the world of 2020. We are here and the future is now. The future is right now. Right now when we're recording, but you'll be listening to this later after we're done recording. So really, hello from the past. Well, they're in the future, so hello to you all in the future. Should we have an entire episode that discusses the philosophy of time <laughs> and, and how we uh, how we intercept with time? Uh, maybe only in the context of time-based media. Oh, yeah. bringing it back to art, art, which we discuss on this podcast. Welcome to Soto, which is State of the Art. Welcome to 2020. I'm Sarah Kensler. And I am Jason McKenzie, and I am coming to you from a land very far away. Very far away from me. But maybe we have listeners in California. Who knows? Maybe. Yes. So I uh, have returned to the desert uh, mm-hmm. to continue the mm-hmm. same job that I was uh, mm-hmm. working last year, if any of mm-hmm. you are, you know, long-time listeners. Uh that's happening again. So I I tried. I tried everybody. I tried real hard to be with you in the cities on a more permanent basis. But you know what? Sometimes what we want just doesn't work out. But you know what? I'm out here and I'm working in the arts. I So, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm doing my part and I am still a Minnesota enthusiast and we will still be talking about all things Minnesota. And Midwest, and Midwest generally speaking. General because Midwest. we're a state of the arts in the Midwest and beyond. Uh, uh, art of the Twin Cities and beyond. Oh, excuse me. Art, of, it's it's the art twin, of the Twin Cities and beyond. The Twin Cities and beyond, and then that beyond kind of encapsulates mostly, like there's like a highlight on Minnesota and then like a little like like different colored highlight on the Midwest and then like a little tiny other different color highlight like on the rest of the world because we kind of mm-hmm. touch on all of it but we're very you know we, we like to promote the heartland as it were as it where it is the land uh, where my heart is so <laughs> Jason, do you what topic do you want to start with today well we're going to talk about some news about a little uh, little town a little town about 400 people and it's located in north central Kansas. I think you oh. I think you all know. The, Clearly the art, all of you know. The art mecca of which I speak. Mhm. And we we say this with with sarcasm in our voices. Um not not to poke fun, but because we are we are genuinely surprised and excited about this tiny little town known as Lucas, Kansas. Shout out. Shout out. So Artsy put out a article um, on at the beginning of this month uh, that surveyed their readers' favorite art destinations and actually uh, called them art pilgrimages around the world. <laughs> yes, so uh, on this list we have things like... Uh, let's see. Oh, Museo Morandi in Bologna, Italy. The Getty Center in LA, like the Getty, you all know what I'm talking about. Of course, of course. We also have the Fondation Pierre Giannada in Martigny, Switzerland. And another uh, art world heavy hitter here in the States, Storm King in upstate New York. Is it upstate? Well, it's <laughs> in hmm. 
like let's, Hudson Valley. Yeah, that's not that's not upstate. That's a that's a conversation for I, another day. I know, but <laughs> living in the, to do living, with living in the city, anything outside of the city was upstate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, city centrist. But listen, just just for those who might be listening in upstate New York, we all know what it means. It means north of Syracuse. That's what it means. Fight me. Anyway, so <laughs> back to the topic at hand. Uh, it also includes the grassroots art capital of Kansas, which is Lucas, Kansas. And more specifically, um, within the city of Lucas, there is an outdoor installation called the Garden of Eden, uh, which was built between 1907 and 1928. So it's very old and thus, you know, very instilled uh, in this town's identity by an artist named Samuel P. Dinsmore, who was an outsider artist. And this, it looks like um, it consists of his home, which is a limestone log cabin. I don't understand that. That's cool. Um, and then about 150 large cement sculptures. Uh, Samuel Dinsmore was considered an outsider artist. Uh, we've spoken about arts, outsider artists before with our conversation about the Noah Purifoy Museum. Yeah. In the desert. And this really kind of feels to me like a prairie Noah Purifoy type museum. You know, it's... Uh, it's odd. It's like an assemblage. It's, you know, kind of wacky. I mean, obviously it's called the Garden of Eden. So this one is, uh, has biblical themes, but they're, you know, just judging from some pictures, there are some very surprising elements to it. Um, also, uh, it includes the artist's own mausoleum. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and it looks like the, that cement, uh, is is kind of the main medium through which this uh, artist works or worked rather now that he is deceased. Um, there's some really great pictures online. We're of course going to post a link to the article so that y'all can see it. But like, shout out to the Midwest. I was so you know I just kind of read these articles regularly um, on artsy.net and I expected to see you know. Paris on there or Switzerland on there or just even the Getty for crying out loud but then I came along and there's this place from Kansas and I was like wow I mean out of everything like there's so many art destinations in the Midwest um just off the top of my head there's Des Moines Iowa you know Minneapolis Minnesota like places that we're familiar with and then there's this place in Kansas that seems in comparison to be low key. Um, what frustrated me though about this particular article is that it doesn't really say why it's included on the list. And I wish that there was more um, of a deeper dive into that. So actually what I'm asking is for somebody to please fund uh, a trip for Jason. I'd go to Lucas, Kansas. Thank you. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um you know, I guess I'm kind of guessing that it's maybe part of, you know, local lore. Like, I think if I understand it from this article, um, it was a person from Indiana who said this was their favorite. So maybe if you're, you know, kind of in that lower Midwest area, you know, maybe it's something that you, 
you talk about and you go to, you know, as kind of like a, hey, if you're going through that area, have you ever heard of this thing? And, you know, they do call it a pilgrimage. So obviously they do recognize that it's something that is out of the way, you know, it's not in Kansas City, Kansas. So it's not like, oh, you know, while you're in Kansas City for that convention you're going to, like, go to their big art museum. No, it's like something that you, you got to work for it. One of the things that I really like about this particular entry is that it spotlights uh, rural art. That's something that's really near and dear to my heart. I mean, this is not a metropolitan area in Kansas. It doesn't have a ton of funding. It's not, until recently, apparently, um, really known on a national stage. Um, but it is it is unique to rural towns, and I think that there's um, there's really more work that we can do in the arts to focus on rural towns and the artists that live within them and the benefits that art can can give to the town in which it resides. Well said, Sarah Kensler. Well said. Thank you, Jason McKenzie. I 100% agree. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, go Lucas, Kansas. We look forward to visiting you, hopefully sometime in the future. I hope you have a newsletter because I'm going to sign up if you do mm-hmm. for all of Lucas, Kansas. All of it. so here we are here we are at the at this time we're going to move on to the second topic which i don't know i don't know what it is because jasa didn't want to tell me before we started recording jasa insists that i find out now while we are recording so that she can get my genuine during recording response to this mystery topic. So I can't wait to hear what it is. Jason, please lay it on me. Wow. I really feel like you pumped that up a lot. Um, it's really, I mean, it's a critical topic. Like I, I'm not it, I am pumped. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm <laughs> like, yeah, that's genuine. Okay. Just like, uh, just, you know, once I bring it up, just say all the things that come to your mind, just stream of conscious it and like, you okay. know, just go. All right. I'm going to close my eyes. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. So as I said before, I'm back in California because mm-hmm. I have a full-time salary job here and I uh, have moved from Minneapolis to New York to California, all driving, by the way. And, you know, I, I, you know, really tried and I've, this whole time I've been, uh, after grad school, I've been trying to end up in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to work institutionally and, uh, especially this past time I had, uh, three serious interviews with major institutions around the country and I had multiple interviews at a certain institution in, uh, the Twin Cities mm-hmm. that, I got really close to, but... You know, really close, but no cigar. Yeah, ultimately uh, rejected twice. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, this other time I had uh, multiple, not only interviews, but second interviews at uh, places in both Minneapolis and St. Paul. That didn't work out. Mm-hmm. So, here I am, uh, after a 30-hour drive. Mm-hmm. Uh, back at my uh, stable job, mm-hmm. and what I this prompted me that what I wanted to talk about today is why is it so hard 
to get a job in the arts. Sarah, do you have any thoughts? <laughs> Boy, do I. <laughs> oh my gosh. This is a huge topic. Okay. Um, so for those of you who don't work in the arts, um, the the humanities in general, uh, and by this I'm, I'm kind of including, what are we including? Like museums, arts nonprofits, libraries. Uh, universities and or local colleges, even cultural institutions, cultural institutions. institutions. So that might include things just around my area, um, like the Swedish Museum, the Russian Museum, uh, the Minnesota Historical Society. Like they don't have to be art based, but they're more humanities. They're more um, socially oriented organizations. There's a couple of theories uh, that we could float. So, um, what, what I think a lot of people, um, at least in my circle, and maybe I'm just surrounding myself with people that agree with me. If you disagree with me, please let me know. I'd love to talk to you. But, um, what, what generally happens is that, um, you, you apply to many, 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 many nonprofits, um, and, and in my case, I think people like around our age, so like mid to late twenties, early thirties, you might even have an advanced degree at this point, such as a, I don't know, like a master's. Oh, I have a master's. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. I also have a master's. Oh my gosh. What a coincidence. Wow. Nobody saw this coming. Um, <laughs> wow. I'm also in my late twenties. <laughs> Holy crap. I'm, I'm in that age group that he just mentioned. I, wow. I am in my early 30s. Uh, so I'm also oh. in the age group that I just mentioned. We literally just fit the demographic that you're talking about. Okay. Yeah, this is this is specifically about us and our generation. Okay. So. <laughs> millennial problems. Millennial problems. Sure. Millennial I mean, it's, in the arts. There's like so much to unpack here. Um, the process, there is a lot. I know this is a big topic. It is. But it I is. feel like you had a lot of things to say. Um, so let's go. Let's set the scene. You you go to college. You acquire a degree. You find out that you want to do something in the arts, um, whether it be studio art, art history, um, nonprofit arts management, community engagement, anything along those lines. Really, it's pretty general, right? Um, then you have to try and get experience in one of those areas. And this is where it gets tougher because you have to acquire experience in that field while also making money to live. And that's that's the sticky part right there because what exists is internships that don't pay you. Um, often they can't because the nonprofit that you're interning at doesn't have money to pay you. You're still interacting with that world, you're learning processes, but you're not getting paid. And so you have to also have a job outside of that, which is usually not humanities related because the humanities doesn't pay well. So you complete your internship, but you also need to find a full-time job, like Jason said. So you start applying. You start applying to many, many jobs. You apply to jobs that you're vastly overqualified for just so you can get in the door, in air quotes, of the institution within which you would like to work long-term. 
And it's that uphill battle, that fight to get in that prompts you to take a customer service job for, say, seven-ish years, um, <laughs> to, to work at a grocery store or to like, and that's why you see so many humanities folks working those types of jobs. And then you continue to apply. And what happens, Jasa? Nothing. Nothing happens. Nothing happens. You apply <clears throat> with your master's degree or your bachelor's, your many, I, many internships, your I recommendations. I have a statistic here, a personal <gasps> statistic. It's oh, not a personal really, statistic. It's not okay. really, right. uh, yeah. Um, a little personal statistic is that uh, in this past job search, which lasted about a year, and I applied for anything through, from major museums to tiny nonprofits and everything in between, I applied for 88 jobs. <laughs> I <laughs> had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight interviews, and zero of them panned out. And I, I have a, a very full resume. I have professional experience, and I have a master's level education, as well as international experience, uh, you know, whatever, publications and my own projects and all of it. So it's hard out there, everybody. Uh, during my time at the, at the Minneapolis Institute of Art, I've been there for seven years now, I had applied to almost every single curatorial department for an office admin position. During the time that I had applied, I had a master's degree. I had worked at the museum for many years, um, got an interview with some of them, not all, but ultimately was not chosen. Now, of course, it's not really about me, right? It's about the people that are also applying for that same job. Um, there is some degree of like legacy hiring present in the humanities, certainly. So if, uh, if your relative, older relative is on the board of said museum and you apply for an admin job, you're more likely to get that admin job. Like it's just kind of a thing that happens. We are just two of the many voices of people who go through this process and have to continue somehow while not losing our sanity. Um, and certainly, you know, Jason and I are two white women, like there are not even systemic things in place really, um, that keep us down as much as there is for, you know, women of, of other races, women of color, people of color, uh, immigrants, literally anybody else. Um, we can't even speak to their struggles directly. And yet we know that they're there. This is a conversation that needs way more voices. Absolutely. And, you know, just as you were talking about, um, you know, your and my personal privileges, privilege is a huge thing that uh, affects jobs in the art world. Like you said, with um, you mentioned nepotism and, um, you know, you a lot of this conversation does harken back to our discussion on unpaid labor in the arts world. So, absolutely. If you want more, if you want more information, you can definitely uh, listen to that podcast. But, you know, another uh, another thing that plays in or how privilege 
plays into the job market is, um, uh, you know, I had to pass by on opportunities that would have been really good for my career, but just because I did not have the time to do them because I had to work. And uh, a lot of people, like, there's this, you know, really vicious cycle of unpaid internships. Uh, some of them are, like, 40-hour internships. Yeah, or, they're full-time. You know, Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they don't pay, and so uh, and you know if you if you want to work in a major institution, you know if you want to work in New York, L.A., Chicago, you know what have you, um, you're paying those living prices, and of course you know that internship at the Guggenheim. I mean, if you can even get it, uh, because if you get through all of the nepotism, or if you I don't know capitalize on it I'm not sure but it's just uh you know you then have to be able to afford to live so there it's you know these things are being taken up by people who don't uh need to work uh need to be paid for their work and they can take this year of unpaid with you know their uh family help or you know some other kind of situation uh, where they're able to, you know, work for free and still live. And then, you know, obviously they get this, they get the connections, they get the experience, they get this, you know, impressive name on their resume. Um, and also people can, you know, do this serially sometimes and then slide into a position, you know, um, I do have a slightly uplifting anecdote, Oh, anybody who would like to hear it? Yes, please. <laughs> uh, so, my uh, at the end of uh, my previous position, when I was having my like you know year end, <clears throat> excuse me, when I was having my year end interview, um, my boss was saying that she was getting pressure from some of the. Um, <clears throat> like upper staff to hire another person for my position and she looked at her resume and she had a six months internship at Maxi in Rome and another internship at the Guggenheim Bilbao and she had you know some in LA and in New York and she kind of had this serial string of internships and you know other uh you know presumably non-paid engagements uh internationally and also nationally at you know these big names and she didn't want to hire her and she ended up hiring me and my resume this was uh when she was initially looking at I was I was still in New York and um I I do have, I did have a, you know, a big name internship, sure, but not more than one. And my resume was mostly full of these front desk customer service jobs at various museums where it was just, you know, clock in, take tickets, clock out, um, in addition to going to grad school. And she said that actually, even though this job really has nothing to do with customer service, she hired me over her because she said she wanted someone that would actually be able to do work and have work ethic. Whereas this person was 
jet setting around and, you know, was, didn't, didn't really know the value of a dollar. And especially if you're working, uh, you know, for like a small nonprofit where budgets is, you know, a really huge deal. Um, and, you know, she wanted someone that would have follow through on projects and, you know, value work and that she didn't see that. Although this person had all this, you know, major experience, uh, that she, you know, didn't fit, uh, you know, the kind of work ethic that my boss was looking for. And so she went with me. So I, I hope that maybe that's a little glimmer of hope for some people who are, you know, working those front desk jobs in hopes of finding something else later on. It, uh, it can happen. It's yeah, again, this topic is, I mean, we could go on forever. And again, there are not enough voices currently in this topic. And currently in our, excuse me, currently in our conversation, there are not enough voices here to really go into the depths that, that Jason, I would want to go into. And, you know, it, it, it deserves more discussion. If you have any questions, you can email us at stateoftheartspod at gmail.com. We would love, love, love to hear from you. Um, we always love hearing from, from the people that listen to our podcast. So, uh, please reach out if you have any questions, concerns, comments, uh, discussions anything just to say hi perhaps just to say hi and thank you so much for listening this is this is something that jason and i decided to do to um to kind of dig ourselves deeper into the arts and and we pay for it out of pocket it's a pretty it's a pretty um low-key operation over here uh but but this is something that we really love and luckily we are now in a space where we both have stable jobs um, and, and we can, we can kind of do this on the side. So there is, there is hope. You just got to be a little creative, which is in not in short supply in the humanities for sure. So another problem is, uh, job availability and just, you know, availability of positions. You know, this isn't, um, necessarily tech where it's ever expanding and, you know, or, like construction where, you know, you just can't get enough or, you know, teachers where like, I just always hear there's a shortage of teachers, but, um, you know, there's, uh, definitely like in a really well-established institution, there are like a set number of jobs and, you know, the, the like institution museum has already like kind of found it's, uh, you know, the way that it works and it has like standards and precedents. And so it's not going to necessarily, you know, hire new positions and nonprofits, um, generally small, you know, they do have this potential to get bigger and bigger, but, uh, you know, that's, that's not always going to, that's not always going to happen or it's not always going to happen, you know, uh, in, you know, such a timely fashion. And so, you know, these are, are very small teams and, you know, just have very narrow availability. And then of course, in both of these cases, uh, when someone does get in the door, they want to stay because they have, uh, you know, gone through this process and they finally have the stability, you know, they're doing something that they want to do. And so they're really going to root in and, you know, try to, you know, uh, grow from within usually. Usually. Uh, Mm -hmm. so there is a, you know, it's, it's tough because, uh, 
you know, the arts aren't the most funded thing. Although Minnesota does a good job, just generally, you know, the arts aren't. And they just this. they just increased the funding actually by like six percent or something. Wonderful. But, thank you, know, you, Minnesota. Thank you, thank you, Minnesota. But compared to like other budgets, yeah, you know, just arts isn't you know it's not going to land in like the top five things that you know the state or like nationally is you know money is getting spent on, and um, so there's not you know, so many things opening all the time, you know, it's not like I I don't see Minneapolis, St. Paul opening like another major institution akin to Mia the Walker, the M, something like that, you know, like this year. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that, you know, just kind of just the places that you can work um, are narrow. Also, um, especially if you want to work at a larger institution, uh, these are, you know, national, international players. Uh, It's wonderful that we have national and international players in the Twin Cities and in the Midwest. But, um, you know, it's kind of a, I don't know, like a tactic or like a trope um, if you're working in New York and L.A. that, you know, to build your career, you go take a job in the Midwest for a little while to like beef up your resume and like get Mm -hmm. that curatorship in the Midwest and then you move back to L.A., New York, what have you. Um, So and, you know, there are other people like, you know, Minneapolis people would take a job in Chicago and a Seattle person would, yeah, definitely, you know, work in Kansas City or, you know, whatever, you know, there's, there's a lot of these kind of, you know, people applying from other places, uh, trying to get into Midwestern institutions. And so you're not only, you know, just kind of battling what's available in your community, but also, you know, people from, all over the country and sometimes internationally are applying for the same things as well. We're not one side versus another side, right? I no, I, I mean, I, I have been that person in those yeah, absolutely. job applications. They were everywhere. Uh-huh. Yeah, of course. Um, it's just, that's just kind of the facts of, of being in the humanities and trying yeah. to find a position that will sustain you. You know, I'm the pinnacle of it. I came to California. I'm not native yeah. here. Yeah. I'm a South Dakotan and now I'm in the desert. Like, what? And yeah, yeah I just, you know, I, I get it. But if you're, you know, not everyone is able to be flexible like I am. You know, mm-hmm. like not everyone is like has all of their stuff that fits in the back of their car and has a car that they're able to, right. you know, drive thousands of miles with, you know, like mm-hmm. I am very privileged to be able to like go somewhere, but right. a lot of people aren't able to, to leave their communities. So exactly. No, yeah. that's, there's a lot to be said for that. And I, you know, I moved out here to go to uh, my master's to, to go to the master's program at university of St. Thomas. Um, you came here to be a master. I came well, here to be a master, but I, I moved well on a whim. Done. I, you know, I had the family support in order to do it. Um, and, and that was kind of like over the, over the course of my life, I've always had that support. And so I was well set up to, to move to a state I'd never been to before on a oh, complete Oh, you hadn't whim. even visited? No, I'd never been out here. Um, 
actually I did, I came out here for a week after I was accepted to St. Thomas just to scope it out. Um, but that was the first time that I'd ever been to the Midwest. I mean, I guess I did something similar to grad school in New York. I didn't, sure. I didn't pick New York for New York. I picked my program, mm-hmm. which happened to be in New York. And I was like, well, I should probably go. I should probably go. Check it out. Like. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was, I was completely uh, new to the Midwest. But, but again, that's just, it's, you know, recognizing the privilege that Jason and I have in, in some ways. And, um, and just recognizing that other people don't have that. A lot of other people don't have yes. that. All right. That was a really good discussion. Uh, <laughs> Patting um, ourselves on the back. I know. God, we're so good. I mean, it's just amazing. Goodness gracious. Um, so now let's let's move on to an interview that I did with an artist named Alyssa Bagas. Uh, she is the current exhibitor with the Minnesota Artist Exhibition Program at the Minneapolis Institute of Art. I she went be there doing... before I left. I was like, I am going to this and yeah. I'm seeing this in person. So good. Yeah, it's so good. Alyssa will be giving an artist talk at the Minneapolis Institute of Art on the second floor in the Minnesota Artist Exhibition Program Gallery <laughs> uh, on uh, Thursday, January 16th, starting at 7 p.m., it is ticketed, but it is completely free. So I would I would highly recommend you all go to that. But in the meantime, please enjoy this interview that I did with Alyssa, uh, where she explains her practice, her approach, and her philosophies. It's it's truly wonderful. I feel like I say that a lot, but who cares? It's truly wonderful. <laughs> it's all true. It's all true, you guys. Um, it was it was great to have spoken with her, and I'm. I'm really excited to see what she does next. Uh, Let's go. So I'm here in the studio of one Alyssa Bogus. Alyssa, thank you so much for letting me come into your beautiful, wonderful, airy, nature-feeling space. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure to have you here. For those of those folks who are not familiar with your work, kind of just give us a brief overview of your philosophy and approach to your art practice. So first I'll say that I'm a visual artist, primarily with some drawing, large scale works on paper, installation, public projects. I'm also an arts administrator. I'm supervisor of a park. So it's, it's a lot of different things, but it's all one big thing. I don't see a difference between my work work and my artwork. It's all blurred together in the last five to eight years, mm-hmm. and I love that. It's important for me to have fun. I follow my joy compass, and if I'm not having a good time, I'm doing something wrong. And I am so curious about things, and so that often drives where I'm headed, like whether I'm curious in a process or materials or a concept, I become really interested in a person or a place and I like just run really fast towards that. And that's just kind of as as simple as it is. For me, it has to be really personal and interesting to me. I think it should be timely, you know, something particular to the time we live in. Um, and, And of course, something that interests me but I also believe strongly that we live in a really great community here in Minnesota. Anybody who knows me, I get on my soapbox a little bit. And I, I'm like, I'm just, 
feel really strongly about supporting that and going and supporting other people who are doing the things that they love. Um, because sometimes it feels really good to have bodies in the room, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and it, it's, I enjoy seeing other people's work. And if we all supported each other in that way, like, it could kind of be amazing. So my understanding of your work uh, as it is currently is it's, it does focus on kind of a few intersections, nature and technology, and also people and their interactions and relationship to mm -hmm. natural landscapes. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it seems like such a, um, like an enhancement mm -hmm. to your original work to then think about the physicality of the work itself because mm -hmm. my your piece at Mia is more or less three-dimensional right it's it's in the middle of the gallery is that correct mm -hmm. and then people kind of interact with it that way mm -hmm. whereas the piece that I'm familiar with from nigh those many years ago mm -hmm. at the M mm -hmm. was just on the wall just kind of like a traditional yeah. work right that happened when I was a Jerome fellow in 2017-18 yeah um, I I'd been working very project-oriented or product-oriented mm -hmm. for so many years and to have the fellowship and I don't want to say have like zero expectations of an outcome because there was still an exhibition. Sure. Um, that didn't go away, but I felt like I had maybe permission to play and explore for a longer period of time. I had the resources to do that through the funding of the fellowship. And I had this overwhelming urge to start creating like actual textured landscapes. Like I was lacking the tactility of an experience um, and that everything had become pretty slicker or removed for me. Yeah. And so I started, um, I built stream tables, which are like sandboxes where you can run water through it to kind of create your own streams and erosion. Um, I had them running here in the studio. I had people over like to have coffee and like yeah. play with them. I was creating inflatable things. I love inflatable things. I then I started folding paper and I was like, wait a minute, maybe I can draw with fold and line. And um, I'm very mathematical. I love origami. And I started thinking about folding like as a map and kind of expansion and contraction of space. And that's when I started creating more three-dimensional work. And, um, and so the piece at Mia that is folded is like a continuation of that Jerome work in a more fully developed concept and form. Um, I felt like the Jerome work, I was, I was just tasting it. And then I had to show something, you sure. know, and I was like, oh, damn it, you know, <laughs> like, oh, I'm kind of in the middle of something here. Can I just play with this a little bit longer? Um, and so it felt really good to realize that in a really big way um, and still have that look of the um, mesh, like, line that you saw at the end where I was cutting away this this kind of wireframe mesh from these images on wallpaper and um, getting that in a three-dimensional sense. But it's also like this way we fold up maps, 
you yep. know, to put them in your pocket. And it also mimics um, the way a lot of nature's collapsed and um, stored, like leaves emerge in a similar manner to these folds. And like the wings of insects. So like nature is, you know, it's kind of a pro at packing things in small places, you know? Wow, I had never thought of it that yeah, way before. It yeah. is a pro at It knows that. exactly what it's doing when it's way ahead of us, Sarah. But, um, <laughs> and then I also love the idea I can just like fold this stuff up and put it in a portfolio. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a 2D artist. It's like just, just tasted a little bit of creating 3D forms. And so... Um, I don't think they're drawings by any means. Like at first I thought I did. I was like, oh, I'm drawing the fold. I don't think that anymore. They're, they're objects um, for sure. And um, so I, I kind of swing back and forth between drawing and 3D. And, but it feels really good right now to make things like three-dimensional objects as I'm kind of longing and craving for that sort of experience. Would it be appropriate to say that you're still kind of you're using the processes and the collaborations and and the fellowship as a way to um, continue to explore your work. And I, I feel like then how does that affect the preciousness of, of the pieces mm-hmm. that you create? Mm-hmm. They don't they don't have to be precious. They can be steps along a path to yes. a journey that will ostensibly probably never end. Yes. Um, but can you just speak for me? You just nailed it. Like that's exa- let's just walk around together. Okay, <laughs> you can just right, talk sure. for me. I'm in. Um, <laughs> because that's that's exactly it. It's this process of inquiry. I don't know if it's always been there, and now I'm just seeing it a little clearer as I become a little more mature in my practice. But I'm always like, it's always it's a similar question I'm always asking. How am I moving through the world? How do I know where I am? How's technology influencing that and changing that? Yeah. What am I doing inside? The you know how am I bringing the outdoors indoors and and then how am I making to understand that and how am I exploring that through visual forms? And it is it's just like what if I tried it this way? What if I thought about it this way? And so sometimes what you said is so spot on. Sometimes the object is not important. Yeah, like the end object is, mm-hmm. is less precious, even yes. though it's it's important of as a course. representation of course of the steps that you've taken. And important as a kind of as a bookmark mm-hmm. where, you know, years from now if you look back and see, oh yes, that's where I was in mm-hmm. my practice mm-hmm. as like a measurement mm-hmm. perhaps of your process development. But sometimes it's the least exciting part of it all. <laughs> Is that yeah. Wrong? Yes. No. Absolutely not. That is <laughs> not. I'm kind wrong of like, all. oh, and I have to make a thing that goes mm-hmm. in a white box. You know, like I love ideation. I love process, and I can just get lost in that. Mm-hmm. It's good to have deadlines. It's good to have sure. exhibition yes. deadlines. Yes, it it's very good. I'm like, wait a minute. I don't. I want to just keep playing with this, and mm-hmm. I would probably just like chase my tail a bit. You know, maybe. I but don't know. That'd be know. kind of fun. I like, think it's, so. That's what makes it so dangerous, though, is that it is so yes, fun. <laughs> it is. And I'm a fun chaser. Yeah. So, and, mm-hmm. you know, so, yeah, definitely could be dangerous. So you've ostensibly moved from a relationship, a visual relationship between people and nature to a physical mm-hmm. 
relationship, exploring the physicality of how we move through nature mm-hmm. rather than how we view it. Because mm-hmm. I, I feel like that was, the viewing of nature seemed much more important. And now that you've, you've kind of accepted this, um, the physicality mm-hmm. of a practice, it's now completely changed, but it's mm-hmm. still very identifiable mm-hmm. as your work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's something about that older work that I love, I and I still love this, but thinking about these machines being rocks—that's the satellites that you're yeah. talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and doing ex- having that experience from a distance in a safe place, maybe in your home. You know, like yeah. it feels really comfortable. And I'm an introvert. Like that, the safety of space, you know, you know, mm-hmm. no one's going to bug you there. <laughs> but like, I, it's just such a, was such a comfortable feeling for me. And then also thinking about land and landscape as like this specimen or this like objectifying it mm-hmm. and, um, and then removing and when I was cutting paper those triangles that you saw in that mural like cutting those away like removing the actual object and just leaving behind maybe this infrastructure below that is is you know similar to how maps are made in google maps and video games you know and all of those experiences a, a less artistic, more scientific way yes, to look at yeah. it. Yeah, but I felt it felt really comfortable mm-hmm. and um, sterile. Yes. And now I have shifted. I am much more interested in the actual experience and how that differs, and how I'm. You know, I'm interested in our sense of direction, um, moving through space. And how mapping apps influence that? Like, do you really know where you are? Do you just kind of like following this voice? Yeah, I do, and I don't really know how I get there sometimes. Sometimes <laughs> I follow it. Like, yeah, I trust. Just it. kind of blindly. You trust, you know. Sure. Um, versus wayfinding, or you know, you know, understanding landmarks, which stems back to my youth. Like when you're in a rural area. You know places based on their proximity to the Dairy Queen. Yes, absolutely you do. Or mm-hmm. you turn at, you know, the Schmidt Farm, and you don't really know the street names, or maybe you understand the topography, but not in the way you do through an application. No. Um, very different. I've shown work in Greater Minnesota at some college galleries, and I love chatting with students about do they use a mapping feature on their phone mm-hmm. to wayfind? And they don't. No. They don't. They use it when they get to the city. Yep. And I mean, I understand that. It totally makes sense. But it's so interesting to talk to them about how they use, you know, wayfinding apps. It is. Or a, that they do. Right. It's a completely different perspective. I uh, can't wait to go and visit your show at Mia. Thank you. It's going to be so cool. Are you doing an artist talk? I am on January 16th. Ooh. Excellent. Come and hear me talk. (laughs) (laughs) So you have a talk on January 16th, which is probably a Thursday. I think it's a Thursday evening. Yeah. And we probably will start at 6-ish. 
I'm guessing it's something like that. Come and see the show at six. And there you go. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Thank you so much. for joining us soda listeners you can find our show notes and other information about us on our website at sodapodcast.blog please email us with any feedback or to alert us of any arts events coming up at stateoftheartspod at gmail.com we're also on instagram and facebook at stateoftheartspod or search for soda podcast you can find episodes of state of the arts on itunes google play stitcher and soundcloud please rate review subscribe and share with your friends we have a Patreon. There's a donation tab on our website. Donating to the Patreon will help us cover the costs of producing the podcast. And as always, our music is provided by The Von Tramps. Record. Record. I'm recording. Am I recording? Yes, I am. There's the lines that represent my speech. Okay. I am also recording. I see the lines. Okay. I saw the lines, and it means that I'm recording. I saw the lines. <laughs> <laughs> yep. That was a good song. Um, I used to, side note, when, you know that song, I Saw the Sign? Because that came out when I was a child. Wait, no, I don't know it. What? You seriously don't? It's, no, that's, I'm, that's kid, what the, I'm kidding because oh I literally God. just like sang the melody. Of it. I was like, wait a minute, this is, oh, you got me, you got me, Mackenzie. <laughs> what I was uh, gonna say was that um, since this song came out when I was like, I don't know, ten or something, I remember I took it really literally, and so I always imagined a person standing there with a sign, and she walked over and was like, I saw the sign, and she got really happy about it, and just like danced away singing the song <laughs> that's really cute I I, yeah. I remember being in the car and my mom and I were listening to the Dixie Chicks album oh yeah. Dixie Chicks yes so good so and good. uh there's one point where she's like I'm gonna do a little mattress dancing and I looked over to my mom and was like mom what's mattress dancing <laughs> and my mom just goes I don't know and I was like oh well, I think it's like when you get to jump up and down on the bed with your friends like while you play music. And she's like, that's probably it. <laughs> oh, my God. That's so cute. <laughs> yeah. I'm crying. So. Okay. 